Ultrasound assessment of fetal weight is an integral part of obstetrical management. However, a single measurement of estimated fetal weight can only indicate the baby's current size. Longitudinal evaluation is a better way to evaluate fetal growth, and this helps to define a growth trajectory. Fetal growth restriction, or FGR, is often caused by placental insufficiency and it is strongly associated with an elevated stillbirth risk. ACOG defines FGR as fetuses with an estimated fetal weight or an abdominal circumference that is less than the 10th percentile for a gestational age. That's found in ACOG's Practice Bulletin 227. All right, we all understand the definition of FGR, but some are arguing against this cutoff. Barker et al. stated in their publication from back in August of 2013 that was published in the Green Journal, quote, This approach is flawed because of the arbitrary nature of the 10th percentile cutoff, the heterogeneity of pregnancies that meet this cutoff. In other words, this also includes constitutionally or non-ill small fetuses and the inaccuracy in estimated fetal weight calculations. In fact, these authors proposed the fetal growth trajectory method to assess estimated fetal weight rather than a static plot graph in use today. They raise great points. Remember that ultrasound has an error of about 10 to 15 percent for estimated fetal weight determinations. A fetal weight above the 10th percentile does not necessarily denote normal fetal growth just because it's above the 10th percentile. Just to be clear, the rate of fetal growth may undergo pathological decline in late pregnancy. In such cases, the birth weight may still be above the 10th percentile, but the fetus may have suffered from growth restriction and may incur an increased risk of perinatal morbidity and mortality. So just because it's not at the 10th percentile doesn't mean that the baby is out of the woods, because growth trajectory also has implications for overall fetal well-being. It is plausible that placental insufficiency placing the fetus at increased risk of stillbirth is not restricted to those born with FGR who meet that diagnostic criteria. Remember, nearly half of normally formed stillbirths are reported to be AGA. That's appropriate for gestational age. There may be a subgroup of AGA fetuses with placental insufficiency who display slowing of fetal growth trajectory while in utero, but who do not end up with a birth weight of less than the 10th percentile. So they're not classed as FGR. This kind of cohort that has declined in fetal weight percentiles in utero in late pregnancy may be an important under-recognized group with suboptimal placental function and possibly may be at increased risk of stillbirth and of later childhood issues. Growth velocity represents the rate of fetal growth in a specific time interval and may have more clinical utility to distinguish normal from pathological fetal growth and may help to identify fetal growth abnormalities that are abnormal but still above that crucial 10% cutoff. But here's the catch. There's a lack of uniform definition of what decelerated fetal growth is. In other words, there's no definition of how much a growth curve needs to decelerate before it can be designated as an abnormal growth curve. Static growth curves have been invaluable to distinguish healthy versus at-risk pregnancies, and they're good, but they do not generate this longitudinal growth trajectory from early pregnancy markers to provide insight into the underlying physiology and dynamic interplay 
between fetal and placental growth patterns. Also, there's an ongoing debate on whether current growth curves should be customized or adjusted for variables like ethnicity, race, and placental weight and size. One of these types of customized growth charts was by Lewis et al. that published their findings in the Gray Journal back in 2015. Gardasi et al. similarly published their type of customized growth chart also in the Gray Journal in 2018. Gardasi et al. developed a formula that helps to adjust for maternal factors in calculating the optimal fetal weight at each gestational age. However, there's a lack of prospective studies that validates these graphs and they're hard to use clinically. Additionally, there's no formal guidelines on what to do in cases of slowed fetal growth trajectories. Yes, guidelines tell us what to do when the estimated fetal weight or abdominal circumference are under the 10th percentile, but what do we do when there's a slowed trajectory? So in this episode, we're going to focus on that very question. What do we do with these fetuses that have plateaued or have slowed trajectories of fetal growth in late gestation, but are still above the 10th percentile? It's a common clinical conundrum. This podcast idea comes from one of our podcast family members who reached out to us for this very reason. Lauren, thank you for your message. Here's your podcast. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the 1980s, the standard fetal biometric measurements for assessing fetal growth included the BPD, head circumference, abdominal circumference, and femur length. These were incorporated into equations for fetal growth and growth predictions according to computerized models called the Hadlock formula. Of course, those are still used today. Of course, fetal growth depends on maternal factors like maternal health status, nutritional status, smoking or drug use, fetal factors like the genetic makeup, and placental function. So what's the data on fetuses with slowed growth trajectories between the second and third trimesters? Well, let's go back first to that publication that we mentioned just a little while ago from Barker et al. back in 2013. Barker found that in regards to perinatal complications, compared with a normal growth trajectory group, those with a pathological growth trajectory, meaning that they had slowed growth or they plateaued, had increased risk of adverse perinatal outcomes. These women also had higher rates of later on developing preeclampsia. So let's just use that as our opening act as we dive into the data. We leave 2013 and go to 2016 now. In 2016, researchers published a prospective longitudinal study which sought to determine whether fetuses that slow in growth but are born appropriate for gestational age, meaning they're still above the 10th percentile, demonstrated ultrasound and clinical evidence of placental insufficiency. 
Everybody good? 2016, researchers looking at ultrasounds that find, hey, you're a little bit slowed in growth, but you're still above 10th percentile. But now let's take a look at ultrasound markers of placental insufficiency. Well, what are those ultrasound markers? Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute. Mainly, those have to do with middle cerebral artery pulsatility indexes. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. This prospective longitudinal study included 48 pregnancies reaching term and who had a neonatal birth weight greater than the 10th percentile. This was a pretty neat study. What the authors did is they estimated fetal weights between 28 and 36 weeks and then looked for those that had a decline in growth trajectory. Then they followed the child until birth and then they looked at the birth weights to make sure that they were still appropriate for gestational age. Everybody good? Ultrasound at 28, ultrasound at 36 weeks. Hey, you're tapering off. All right, let's do additional studies at that time, which were Doppler ultrasounds, and then let's wait for the birth weight to ensure that they were appropriate for gestational age, right? That's exactly what we're talking about. Those who have slowed growth trajectories in late pregnancy, but are still born above the 10th percentile, so they're AGA. And here's what kind of Doppler studies they did. Before they delivered, they looked at fetal placental Doppler findings that could be associated with uteroplacental insufficiency. Now remember, these are all above the 10th percentile, so technically they're normal, but they have slowed in growth. So these authors had a great idea. Let's take a look at middle cerebral artery pulsatility index, which could be a marker of uteroplacental insufficiency before they get to the 10th percentile to see if there's issues going on, all right? Now remember that a lower middle cerebral artery pulse index reflects greater diversion of blood supply to the brain. We're going to show you what that means in just a minute. And the short answer was... Yes, they did exhibit lower middle cerebral artery pulsatility index. They were significantly associated with this decline in fetal growth between 28 to 36 weeks. So what does that mean and what does it have to do with the middle cerebral artery? So here it is. Middle cerebral artery Dopplers are usually done uh, in one of two conditions. First, for fetal growth restriction because a lower middle cerebral artery means that there could be some uteroplacental insufficiency and fetal impairment. The other time that you look for middle cerebral artery is for RH isoimmunization. Remember, there's an increase in flow when the child has hemolytic disease, but that's not what we're talking about here, all right? So for points of, of discussion here as it relates to altered fetal growth, middle cerebral artery pulsatility index that drops is a marker for adverse perinatal outcomes. I'm going to explain why in a minute, but I just want you all to get that, right? MCA pulsatility index with altered fetal growth that is lower, so less pulsatility, less flow is a marker of adverse neonatal issues. So let's just recap. What does this mean now? Well, it means that slowing in growth across the third trimester among fetuses who are still above the 10th percentile, according to this study, was associated with ultrasound markers showing placental insufficiency. And, and it makes sense, right? I mean, we don't really need Doppler studies. Hey, the kid has kind of stopped growing. <laughs> Normally, there's a continued growth trajectory within that certain percentile of growth. So if it levels off, is there something going on that could be a marker of some ill perfusion? All right. And the answer is yes. So let me explain this in a super easy way. The presence of brain sparing is identified clinically by reduced Doppler pulsatility index of the MCA. All right, so that's brain sparing with decreased Doppler pulsatility of the middle cerebral artery. That's been published back in 2012. This occurs secondary to absent or reversed flow in the umbilical artery. So just follow with me. I'm going to explain this. All right, so short of it is placenta doesn't work. That leads to altered flow in the uh, umbilical cord. That leads to altered and decreased flow of the MCA. 
This indicates that the likely sequence of events in fetal growth restriction begins with suboptimal placental function with high uteroplacental resistance, and this leads to impedance or absence of flow in the umbilical artery. This, of course, leads to increased fetal hypoxia and consequent brain sparing, and that's evidenced by vasodilation of the middle cerebral artery. Everybody good? So you've got a middle cerebral artery. Now it gets dilated, so the pulsatility index drops. This combination of an absent or reversed umbilical artery and diastolic flow with a middle cerebral artery Doppler pulsatility index that falls under 10th percentile means that there is an increased risk of perinatal morbidity and mortality. So to make it brief and to make it very clear, the author stated, quote, these fetuses with slowed growth trajectories that are still above the 10th percentile may represent an under-recognized cohort at increased risk of fetal morbidity or mortality, end quote. Yes, I felt that was super technical. Let me just stop there for a minute. Just make it super easy. Look, those that have altered fetal growth in the third trimester but are still above the 10th percentile, these authors found, wow, they kind of have some early evidence of uteral placental insufficiency just by looking at Dopplers of the middle cerebral artery. And to make it clear, that was decreased pulsatility index, which is a marker of uteral placental insufficiency. But remember, they're still technically normal because it's above the 10th percentile. This was published by Barden et al. back in 2016 plus one, and the title was Placental Insufficiency in Fetuses at Slow in Growth but Are Born Appropriate for Gestational Age, a Prospective Longitudinal Study. Ooh, okay, that was a lot. Now that we've covered that, remember that was 2016, let's keep on moving down the line to August 2017. Teresa McDonald et al. performed a prospective cohort study of 308 nulliparous women who subsequently gave birth to AGA infants. Remember, that's appropriate for gestational age. Ultrasound was used at 28 and 36 weeks to determine the estimated fetal weight as well as the abdominal circumference. They correlated relative estimated fetal weight and abdominal circumference growth velocities with three clinical indicators of placental insufficiency, all right? So now, all right, you've got altered fetal growth. Again, same thing, 28 to 36 weeks. Now let's look at clinical issues that these babies had. One of these markers was still in utero. That was an ultrasound called a fetal cerebral placental ratio, a CPR. Yeah, that's a thing. And if it's less than the fifth percentile, that reflects placental resistance and blood flow redistribution to the brain. In other words, that's another ultrasound marker of a fetal response to utero placental insufficiency or hypoxia. All right, so the first marker that they looked at was an ultrasound of fetal CPR, cerebral placental ratio. It's super complicated. I'm not going to get into it, but just know that it's an ultrasound marker of potential fetal compromise. The second marker that they looked at was actual neonatal acidosis at delivery. That's an umbilical artery pH, and they use a cutoff of less than 7.15. I get it. We use 7.00, but they use 7.15 just to be super conservative, and they moved up the needle a little bit. The third clinical marker they looked at was after the baby was born, they looked at neonatal body fat percentage because those that have a lower neonatal body fat percentage could reflect nutritional deficiencies in utero. So what happened? Well, as you could guess, those fetuses that demonstrated slowed fetal growth velocity between 28 and 36 weeks, and these authors used a one centile reduction in growth as an abnormality. So one centile is one 10% uh, tier. In other words, if it was 50% at one time, and then you repeat the ultrasound, it's less than 40th percentile. 
or if it was 60th percentile first and then you repeated it and it was less than the 50th percentile, right? So one centile reduction led to an increased risk of cerebral redistribution ratio, that's the CPR, of around 2.4%. Also, neonatal acidosis risk went up, but it wasn't a huge risk. The odds ratio was just at just over 1 at 1.024. Now, that's good news. But the odds ratio for low birth fat was 3.3%. Remember, low neonatal body fat could also be a sign of reduced nutritional reserve in utero. Now, hold on a minute. Let me explain. That one centile reduction, that 10% change, didn't give dramatic increases in perinatal outcomes. That's good news. However, when there was a decline in the growth trajectory by 30 percentiles, in other words, if it was 71st and then it moved down to 40 percentile, right? That's a 30% change. If it's changed in 30%, each one of those three markers increased significantly. In other words, that change in fetal growth trajectory, the more that it slows, the more it was linked to increased adverse outcomes. So the degree of slowing is highly important here. Remember, this is both for total EFW by headlock as well as abdominal circumference that lags as an independent marker. So these authors concluded, quote, reduced growth velocity between 28 and 36 weeks among fetuses that are still born AGA can be associated with antenatal, intrapartum, or neonatal indicators of placental insufficiency. The implications of these findings are that AGA fetuses that decline in growth trajectory may be suffering from placental insufficiency, placing them at increased risk of stillbirth. Now they go on to say, and here's a clinical pearl, quote, these fetuses potentially represent an important unrecognized cohort at increased risk of stillbirth and may warrant more intensive antepartum surveillance, end quote. Now remember, and here's a clinical pearl, right now, SMFM and ACOG does not use altered growth trajectory as an indicator for antepartum fetal surveillance. It's just not in there. The indication for antepartum fetal surveillance, as well as for umbilical artery dopplers, are for established fetal growth restriction. In other words, the estimated fetal weight or abdominal circumference is less than the 10th percentile. Not 10th percentile, but less than the 10th percentile. So just to be clear, these authors, which were published in BMC, medicine in 2017 do suggest that antepartum fetal surveillance be offered for those with slowed fetal growth trajectories, but that is not yet an ACOG or SMFM indication for antepartum fetal surveillance. All right, podcast family, let that sit in. And when we come back, we're going to review why fetal growth trajectory matters and why what happens in the womb doesn't always stay in the womb. We just discussed that those fetuses having a slow growth trajectory but still above the 10th percentile may be at risk of uteroplacental insufficiency and some adverse immediate perinatal outcomes. But what's even more interesting is what some research has found regarding the association between this slowed intrauterine fetal growth trajectory and outcomes later on in life, mainly in childhood and early adulthood. This brings us to data from 2019. In 2019, researchers in the Netherlands published a prospective population-based cohort study that included close to 8,000 live singleton births that had data available on their second trimester EFWs and their final birth weights. 
Now, remember, there's no formal definition of how much a growth curve needs to decelerate before it's designated as an abnormal growth curve. The researchers used a change in growth for this study of greater than 40 percentiles. In other words, it dropped from, let's say, 70 percentile at first to a final birth weight that's 40 percent different. That was considered a deceleration in growth for purposes of this publication. Deceleration of growth occurred in 27% of those babies that eventually were termed SGA, found on final birth weight. In those neonates that were termed to be of appropriate gestational age, in other words, AGA, 10% were found to have that slow trajectory of growth towards the end of pregnancy. Of all fetuses with decelerated growth, actually 90% were still appropriate for gestational age. These children were then followed to age 2 to track follow-up growth and then to age 6. Now, here's what's interesting. At age six, these researchers looked at several cardiovascular markers for these children, including just standard blood pressure checks and carotid femoral pulse wave velocimetry and even two-dimensional M-mode echoes. For those neonates that were born appropriate for gestational age, but that had that slowed growth trajectory, they were compared to neonates without growth deceleration and who had a normal birth weight. Here's what was found. At age two, those babies that who as fetuses had that slowed growth trajectory, they actually had more accelerated catch-up growth than those who did not have that slowed growth trajectory. So that's the good news, right? In other words, they had an accelerated growth of catch-up. So that's reassuring. However, that catch-up phase that's accelerated may be linked to some increased inflammatory responses and stress responses. So it's kind of a paradox. Yay, it's great. They caught up in growth, but they tend to have some other issues involved. You see, one of the key findings of this study is that those neonates that had the decelerated growth curve, although they do have that increased risk of accelerated growth postnatally, they have altered cardiovascular outcomes at the age of six, despite the fact that 90% of those with the decelerated growth actually were born appropriate for gestational age. Now, the main strength of this study was the extensive prospective data collection on fetal growth, childhood health, and even environmental influences. It is well established that low birth weight is associated with poor cardiovascular health in later life, but the fact also that growth patterns and growth trajectory is a risk factor independent of birth weight is an important finding. All to say, at age six, those cardiovascular assessments did show signs that has been previously published to be markers of altered cardiovascular function as adults. Now, it's difficult to relate these measurements to exact cardiac function in later adult life, but nonetheless, these findings strongly suggest that growth deceleration in utero, despite ending up still with normal birth weight, does have this negative imprinting on the cardiovascular system even in utero. So it's true what happens in the womb doesn't just stay in the womb, it could actually have big influences later on in life. This study was published in BMC Pregnancy and Childbirth in June 2019, and the title of the publication is Deceleration of Fetal Growth Rate as Alternative Predictor for Childhood Outcomes, a Birth Control Study. The lead author is Broy Brown. So this is nothing hard to understand, right? We've known this for some time. Things that happen in the womb, intrauterine environments, definitely predisposed to later life occurrences. That's genetic imprinting, epigenetic effects. We've known this. Things that happen in the womb don't stay in the womb. 
Of course, this is nothing new. We've known for some time now that intrauterine influences can show up later on in adult life. This was called the Barker hypothesis, and it actually goes back to 1995 with Barker, who we've already talked about earlier on in this episode. This was published in BMJ. Barker's hypothesis, called the Thrifty Phenotype Hypothesis, states that things that happen in utero, mainly because of uteroplacental insufficiency or inadequate nutrition, has this programming effect for later adverse events. Now, some of those things are modifiable, so that's good. Some things may not be. But the good news is, again, there is hope because we can identify these, and thankfully, some of these things are modifiable. Some of those things are like obesity, and we're going to talk about that coming up in just a minute. But anyway, this whole theory of Barker's hypothesis and this whole in utero programming, again, goes back to 1995 when it was published in the British Medical Journal. We all understand that, don't we? I mean, it's one thing to have adverse outcomes at time of delivery, like low APGAR scores, admission to the NICU, need for a neonatal resuscitation, etc., etc. Those are uh, understandable. But what we now know is that intrauterine environment is intimately tied to future childhood well-being and overall health. This brings us to a study now in August of 2022, where Australian researchers sought to investigate the relationship between intrauterine growth trajectories and anthropomorphic and inflammatory markers in young adult offspring. These same authors had previously already shown that restricted fetal head and abdominal circumferences to be associated with higher adult blood pressure independent of a range of confounders, including adult adiposity. So just like the study that we just talked about in 2019, these researchers out of Australia showed, hey, slowed growth trajectory, but still above the 10th percentile, so not fetal growth restricted, do have this cardiovascular imprinting. So we've already established that. But now, let's take a look at what they found, again, following these and looking specifically at anthropomorphic changes and inflammatory markers when these children with slowed fetal growth are now young adults. The findings of these authors showed that adult BMI and waist circumference was inversely associated with fetal growth trajectories inversely associated. In other words, as fetal growth trajectory decreased, adult BMI and weight circumference increased. Crazy! Restricted abdominal circumference throughout pregnancy was associated with higher adult C-reactive protein. So it's not just an anthropomorphic finding, but again, they do have this higher level of just chronic inflammation in the background. The associations between fetal growth and adult adiposity and CRP largely persisted even after adjustments for postnatal lifestyle factors as well as maternal and pregnancy covariates, which effects were more pronounced in females compared to males. So these findings support the evidence linking different patterns of fetal growth with markers of adult cardiovascular disease, including findings of these relationships to adult blood pressure, inflammation, and even true physical findings like BMI and waist circumference. So now here's a clinical pearl. These findings are the first to show an inverse relationship between measures of in utero fetal growth and adult C-reactive protein. Remember, that's a biomarker of chronic low-grade systemic inflammation. 
Now, let's be clear, you guys. Obesity is a super complex issue, right? I mean, there's an array of genetic and environmental factors, dietary influences, metabolic issues. All of these things go into obesity. And it's true that we do have some ability to modify those genes in terms of what we eat and how much we burn and just staying fit. But it is also surprising that there may be this genetic imprinting, this epigenetic imprinting in utero that happens because of this altered fetal growth trajectory. That's all part of this in utero hypothesis that Barker was talking about. In other words, that stress from in utero, even though they were born appropriate for gestational age, that slowed growth trajectory, what happens in the womb doesn't stay in the womb. And it's now being found that not only do they have these cardio cardiovascular risk factors uh, and altered profiles, but they're also at risk for obesity. Man, that's just wild. Okay, time for soapbox moment. Because, you know, we just not taught this in standard obstetrics. We are all taught to look for the 10th percentile. And if it drops under that, then we do quick surveillance. And that's right. That's absolutely the correct thing to do, including umbilical artery dopplers. But we don't really get this kind of attention, this training on this altered fetal growth trajectory. That seems to be equally important. Remember how we started off the podcast? Hey, putting little dots in a graph is fine, but probably it's better to do this growth trajectory. Now, to be clear, I know we don't track fetal growth by ultrasound in everybody, especially in those that are considered low risk. But in those that are high risk, whether they are high risk by race, high risk by medical condition, by previous history, then when we track this growth, when we do these serial ultrasounds for fetal growth, it's not okay just that they're above the 10th percentile. But what those percentiles look like obviously matters. Now, the reverse is also true. You can go above 90th percentile. You got to trend that too to look for macrosomia later on. But importantly is if it trends down, it's not necessarily quote unquote normal just because it's above the 10th percentile. So this is something that I've had to grasp as well. Yes, it's super important to be above the 10th percentile, but the the trajectory, what you were before uh, in your terms of your fetal growth is equally as important. And my goodness, if anything else, this should give us a new sympathy or empathy or understanding of obesity. Now, to be very clear, yes, obesity has some modifiable components. I have to be clear. Yes, that is true. I get that. I mean, if you have 8,000 calories a day putting in and you're burning off 1,000 calories, that's likely going to lead to fat accumulation. I get that. However, we do need to step back and go, you know what? Yes, there's modifiable issues. But man, the reason it may be difficult for some people to lose weight, they, they may have this programming that happened in utero, and they obviously can't control that. Is that wild or what? Now, I'm not trying to excuse obesity as outside anyone's control, because again, there are things that we can do. Yes, it's important to keep weight in check, good dietary intake, exercise, burning calories are all vital. But it does make the evidence-based argument that some patients can't escape the cards that they were dealt with because of this in utero programming. Just think about that for a moment. podcast family, now that we're getting towards the end and we've covered all of this data and our little walk through history, what do we do with this? Well, as stated by Zhang et al. in 2010, quote, an ideal definition of fetal growth restriction would take into account the growth potential of the fetus, the current fetal size, fetal and placental health, and if available, the fetal growth velocity, end quote. 
that was published in the Gray Journal again in June of 2010. Of substantial proportion of FGR infants may be missed simply because their weight is above the 10th percentile. Ideally, we should have a way to distinguish normal versus abnormal fetal growth trajectory, but unfortunately, we just don't have a great way to do that right now. Although investigators in several studies have attempted to identify trajectory models that might aid us in identifying at-risk fetuses, as yet, there's no data that's been validated or reproduced among the different studies. They all have different tools to do this. Other authors have advocated for umbilical artery dopplers and or uterine artery dopplers in those cases that are found to have slowed fetal growth trajectories but we don't have any uniform way to interpret those. Right now, the only way that umbilical artery dropplers are interpretable is in the background of established fetal growth restriction. So that's not a good idea either because we don't have any guideline national basis to base that decision on. At the most conservative, those that are found to have a slowed fetal growth trajectory should have fetal weight tracked and trended. In other words, repeat the ultrasound in three to four weeks. And in those that are showing marked plateau in fetal growth, consideration may be given to antepartum fetal surveillance. Although, just to be clear, and we already said this earlier on in the episode, that is not considered a traditional criteria for antepartum fetal surveillance by the college or SMFM at this time. But some do raise that as level C opinion. Again, that's medical expert opinion. So the idea is to do shared decision-making with the patient, let them know and educate them on these slowed fetal growth trajectory and make sure that things are being addressed like healthy lifestyle, proper nutrition, and again, at the most conservative and the least invasive is to simply follow up and trend that growth over the next three to four week interval. And lastly, as of now, slowed fetal growth trajectory is not an indication for induction. It's not one of the listed criteria for medically necessary late preterm or early term deliveries. Although, of course, we do have guidelines for when to deliver based on established fetal growth restriction and findings on umbilical artery Doppler. All right, podcast family, I hope this podcast gives you something to think about. It's something that I've had to learn myself because many, many times throughout the years, I've caught myself saying, oh, look, hey, your fetal growth is now at 20% before it was 50%, but that's okay. Sometimes it just kind of level out and you'll be fine because it's above the 10th percentile. I've had to retrain my brain and retrain myself to go, well, wait a minute, why is there this, this plateau, this slowed growth trajectory? And that may be a marker of something going on. We need to follow that up. So again, it's something that I've had to learn personally, and I hope this uh, was insightful and helpful to you as well. Lauren, what a great clinical question. My goodness. I hope this information helped you as well as you care for your patients and your practice. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.